there was a study that came out this summer, and the U.S. researchers showed that within a few months of the launch of ChatGPT, copywriters and graphic designers on major online freelancing platforms saw a significant drop in the number of jobs they got and even steeper declines in earnings. Anecdotally, the people who did the study went to the companies that were previously employing these folks, and they discovered that indeed it was AI that was doing the copywriting. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting, that might be promissory, sort of fun, oh, still kind of, an interesting, well, I'm really flailing here. This is going to be the personal wealth coach. Oh, that's 100% truthful. We're going to do our best to be exciting and interesting, but if you've ever listened to us before, you know that we're very trying. Um, now, on to disclosures. The uh, Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of this program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm, and that's not a coincidence because the two guys speaking on the air with you are the two principals at that firm. Uh, this radio program predates the firm by quite a bit. That's where the firm's name came from. Elder Baldy Jeff here came up with that in a brainstorm session, and it stuck. So the Personal Wealth Coach is an SEC-registered investment advisory, and it's also this program. Two different things, though. We can't give fiduciary investment advice on the air because privacy, because we don't know you all. Well, maybe we do. Maybe there's nobody listening, and we know no one. <laughs> uh, but any way you look at it, it's, it's not appropriate to give personalized investment advice in a public setting. Uh, it also is strange in that we can't give investment advice because we don't know you all, so we've got to give education. Even though we're signed up to be fiduciaries, our role here is as teachers, which is a different sort of fiduciary role of trying to impart knowledge rather than tell you what to do specifically. Um, just because the firm's registered with the SEC does not think does not mean that the SEC has anointed us or has given us some special place to sit on the table with Odin in Valhalla or any other uh, abstract religious references or regulatory references for that matter. They're just the regulatory organization. And it's kind of like when you show your Texas driver's license or New York driver's license, it doesn't mean that the state of Texas or New York has somehow said that you are free from all possible wrongdoing. Nope, that's just who gave the license. So slightly different, but you get the analogy. Uh, let's see here. Uh, what else do we? Oh, we don't pay for this radio program. I know that's weird. It's Saturday morning and there's paid programming all over Saturday morning. Our program predates that craze back when AM radio actually was profitable without having canned audiences clapping and laughing and such. Um, we Well, maybe they did that too. Uh, how, how Orwellian of us. Um, Thinking back to that, there was canned laughter, wasn't there? So, no, we're not paying for this program. We do we do buy advertisements on the station, 
but uh, at, we're actually talking to them because they haven't updated our prices in way, way long. So we may wind up paying more for our advertisements in the future. We'll see. Uh, this is a normal negotiation. And that kind of lets you know that we're paying for our advertisement time. We're not paying for this program. And we haven't for 26 years. It's been free to them, free to us. Um, two hours plus prep time once a week for 26 years. If you do the math on that, it's a lot. Um, and I'm not going to attempt it because that'd be, a, I'll do the math to see how much time I would waste to figure out how much time I wasted. That seems like a waste of time to me. Um, you have a disclosure to give. Well, I do. In fact, the information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no claim or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. I like how you switched that up this week. I did. I changed it. The claim for guarantee, which is kind of close, but different, has some good meaning. It's, it's very nice. Well, uh, you mentioned something just quick in passing. Did you mention West Texas Intermediate? I did. It, it was uh, interesting to note what's happened with, with it's oil. It's falling. It's falling. Yeah. You know, a last... You know, this last month I came back from Galveston and I talked about the new oil rigs in the Gulf that are moving up production. We're seeing kind of getting close to our top production mark in the United States for what we've ever produced. Uh, and right in the middle of that, something kind of slipped under the radar. Uh, something happened with Venezuela last month uh, toward toward well, right in the middle of the month, but kind of approaching the end of the month. And that is that a lot of the sanctions on their oil exports were released. I know this is this seems like a strange little mention, but they used to produce at their peak about 5 million barrels a day. They've been hovering around 300,000 to 500,000 for the past about 7 years. Most of that is traded to China because they're so many sanctions on Venezuela. They're, it's essentially struggling at being a failed state. And well, how did the sanctions get lifted? Well, a whole bunch of people from Europe and the United States met in, in Barbados with a bunch of people from Venezuela. And they said, hey, you guys have elections that outside parties can monitor next year for the president, and we'll let you start exporting. So Qatar has started a uh, a new ref or is reopening an, a refinery in the Caribbean. Notice not in Venezuela. Venezuela has a habit of seizing property of oil explorers and keeping it for themselves and being very popular with its own people for doing so. So Qatar is not going, even though they kind of mediated this new deal, they're not going to put a bunch of money into Venezuela where they can yank it back. So they're opening a refinery in the Caribbean, and it's, it's an interesting little piece of data in that part of the reason why Venezuela's oil exports dropped and its oil production dropped was they didn't know how to run the equipment that was purchased and run by large oil companies. So when they seized it from the oil companies, um, a lot of people left that were running it for some reason. Uh, the the people their employers weren't paying them anymore, and so they did fine for a while. But then production started falling, and it fell fast when it started falling. So why am I bringing this up? 
because crude oil is trading at right about $77 a barrel now in West Texas Intermediate. At the same time, we're about to hit winter and Europe is looking around going, what are we going to do? Only not so much this year because we're exporting so much more liquid natural gas to Europe from the United States. They have an abundance. They're not going to probably need to dip into their reserves this winter, even though Russia is not sending them any. So a lot of the issues with Russia and oil are being pulled out of the system because Russia is such a monster. Um, and right at the same time that Venezuela's sanctions are lifted, the UK hit Russian gold and oil sectors with new sanctions. So who is buying Russia's oil now, just as a side note? India and China, mostly China. So basically, China's reaching around trying to find cheap oil. It can't get it from Venezuela anymore because Venezuela is now able to sell it at normal prices to the rest of the world. China was getting it cheap because everybody else was sanctioning Venezuela. They're getting it cheap from Russia because Russian oil is sanctioned and they're saying, hey, nobody else is going to buy it. We'll buy it. We're the only purchaser. So we'll, we'll pay you less than what other people would have. So that's going on. Uh, we're tightening more on, on the oil on, the, on uh, Russia. At the same time that this is happening, Russia's looking around and basically saying China is its lifeline. Without China right now, the Ukraine war would not be functional because Russia still is selling oil. It's just selling the vast majority of it to China. Without that oil, it wouldn't have the income to continue the war. Well, it's a lot less income than it was prior to the war. For the first years, well, I guess about eight months of the war, they stayed pretty equilibrium on the oil sales because the rest of the world had to get untied from them. Well, now China's out there doing this. And then something interesting happened on Thursday. And it sounds like I'm about to change the subject. Bear with me. I'll come back. On Thursday, the U.S. Treasury did a big auction. They do this regularly. This is how they sell bonds and notes and bills. When we talk about the U.S. Treasuries that people are buying, their initial release is at an auction. Now, it's not with an auctioneer and a room full of people with paddles. Used to be. It's not that way anymore. In fact, the way it works is that they have one trading institution, and there's a, some cool story around that, stories around that, that is available to do the auction for the treasury. If you've ever been to a government auction, you realize that they're not necessarily going to get the best prices for things when they do it themselves. Why that is, I'm not really sure. But when the county auctions a house, when the bankruptcy court auction stuff, usually you get really cheap prices for things that you would have to pay a lot more elsewhere. The government recognized that way, way, way back at the time of Hamilton and before and said, we're not going to do our own auctions. We're going to hire an expert at this to do it for us. In this case, they're using the Bank of New York Mellon. It's not always been the bank that they use. Um, if you want to look into 9-11 and the Treasury scare after 9-11, it's worth it. The firm that they used prior was utterly destroyed on 9-11. So the U.S. government had to scramble to find someone with the appropriate security and secrecy to sell the treasuries at auction. Well, they, they settled on Bank of New York Mellon. Bank of New York Mellon 
is a good bank. I'm, I'm not going to give them any kind of kudos or lack of kudos or anything else. They're a good bank. It, it, part of it was founded by Alexander Hamilton, the other by Mellon. These are both really uh, conservative bank concepts. If you want to think about banks as being conservative and not taking risk, this is a good example. There are, there are other banks in that category. This is an old one and a big one. So it seems reasonable for them to be the ones in charge. Now, the requirements to be the sole auctioneer of U.S. treasuries from the government are rather high. Security is off the wall high, uh, off the charts, up the wall, through the roof. I'm going to mix as many metaphors as possible. I have a new blender. So they're required to be extra secure. Because this is not a, a situation that needs to get messed up. So Thursday, we have this big auction. The way this works is there are a series of other big banks who are all signed up with the government to be sponsors, if you will, of the auction. So they have to show up and they bring clients. Their clients will buy at the auction. So it's kind of like a representative democracy. A bunch of people come together and say, I'm going to put my orders through this company, and this company is going to put its order in the auction against the Bank of New York Mellon's auctioneer. Okay. Well, China has one bank that it uses for all of its purchases. China has a lot of banks back in China. Uh, so this is a fascinating little piece of data. On Thursday, there was a weird thing that happened at auction. A lot of orders that were expected just didn't occur. People that normally bid were silent and they had been telling, this is a kind of auction where they tell the auctioneer in advance, yeah, we're going to buy a bunch of stuff this week or this month or on Thursday, depending on how many auctions they go to. And the auctioneer goes, okay, we'll be expecting that just to keep it orderly we're not going to have like a scrum of chaos as people are bidding all at the same time. They're going to slowly approach that. They slowly approached it and then the orders didn't show up. And these are from Chinese banks. And they said, well, what's going on here? Well, the sponsors of the auction, the big, big banks that come to the auction have a requirement. The government has all kinds of requirements on this stuff. Hey, if we come to auction and you tell us, a bunch of you tell us you're going to make orders and then those orders don't show up, the sponsor banks have to buy the rest, which seems a little bit weird, but it's it's the government talking here. And it's not like Louis Fourteenth who would just go and have whole noble families killed to take their fortune for the crown to pay. You don't need to issue bonds if you can just take somebody's money. Well, in this case, they said in order to be orderly, we, we need you to step in if the bids aren't there that you say are going to be there. So about 25% of that auction was purchased by the sponsors. This caused a pretty drastic five-minute change in the yield on the 30-year treasury. It went from 4.7 to, uh, let me see, where'd it go? Uh, it went up from 4.6 to about 4.8. That doesn't seem like a lot when we look back over the last year and a half or so of increased rates. But in a five-minute period, that's nuts. It, it didn't even bring us back to where we were uh, November 7th. But it happened very fast. And anybody watching the charts saw the spike. And they said, what's going on? There's not enough people to buy the debt. So the rumors started in the background. You didn't see a lot of the of, of headlines about this. They were just, uh, it was one of the things I was planning on talking about to just bring this stuff out and talk about. 
how underlying how we have checks and balances in place to prevent um, horrible catastrophes from occurring. Well, then the news started coming out. The one bank that I was talking about that uh, deals for China, um, and that's really what they're doing. They're buying and selling for their dealing for the Chinese stuff is uh, Industrial and Commerce Bank of China, ICBC. Um, and they're a huge chunk of this. They had $9 billion that they were supposed to buy, which is a big chunk of the auction. They had orders in place and they'd already issued them to, to BNY Mellon. They said, here's the money. We're, I mean, here's our orders and we'll give you the money as soon as you get the order done. So BNY Mellon said, hey, you said you were going to do this. You didn't do it at the auction, but you ordered these. You need to pay for them. So the parent bank which is the Chinese government of ICBC, wired $9 billion to the Bank of New York Mellon. Why? What, what happened? It was a ransomware attack. Now, how is this all connected back to the oil and Russia and all that silliness that I said it would bear with me? A ransomware attack occurred, and on that ransomware, who, who did it? Who set this up? It's a place called Lockbit. I don't recommend Googling it. If you follow the links, you might get some ransomware yourself. It is a platform, if you will, for hackers to buy software or to post software specifically for the purpose of encrypting someone else's information with a password only you own so that if they want that information, they have to pay you money. And that's what happened to ICBC. Lockbit software was used as in a ransomware attack against the single firm allowed to trade in U.S. treasuries from China. Now, China is a big buyer of treasuries. They own about $800 billion of U.S. treasuries. It used to be about $1.4 trillion. And back in 2018, they've been having some issues of their own and have been slowly not buying or selling. They have been selling some, but not buying as much. Japan is now the number one holder and has been since about 2019 of U.S. treasuries external to the country. By far the number one owner of U.S. debt are United States citizens. Okay, so China's trying to buy and it can't. What is it trying to buy? It is the only firm allowed to buy U.S. treasuries for China, period. It's just not possible to do it otherwise. And in the process of doing this, who's hacked them? Where is Lockbit? This is where the tieback comes from. Hopefully I didn't create the level of suspense that I wanted to, but it's coming back. Lockbit is based in Russia. Just let that sink in for a second. There's a massive ransomware attack on a Chinese bank that is the only one allowed to do trade with the United States from a Russian designed set of software. And most often it's a Russian backed hacker. Um, they have a little, those of you that have listened for a while know that I kind of look into the crypto back, back news, like by crypto encryption, not the currency side to figure out what's going on in the big wide world. And it's still a bit of the wild west, but there are some firms that are truly gifted with security. And mostly that's just making it very difficult for anybody to be able to log into a system. So ICBC was shut out of the network from Bank of New York Mellon before they announced the ransomware attack. So think about that for a second. Uh, Bank of New York Mellon noticed weird transactions and 
odd orders or delays in orders occurring from ICBC and shut them out of the network. Then the ransomware attack is is confirmed and Bank of New York Mellon says, we're not going to allow you back into the network until you've had a third party audit from one of these three firms to make sure your encryption and levels of security are all in place because we're not going to have this market crash. Our job is to keep an orderly market and we're not going to have a crash from an external event that has nothing to do with the market. So this is a, a tale, two tales, one of utter failure in a weird political friendship between Russia and China, and two of a system that was designed in advance for this kind of failure. We often talk about failures in the aftermath of a massive catastrophe in, in finance where everything collapsed and it was horrible and nobody knew this was coming. We don't usually talk about the planes that land safely. And this is one where an engine fire started. Not only was it handled safely, it was handled exemplarily well. The, the landing of that aircraft is being reported, at least by me. You may not hear much about this at all elsewhere, but there's some intricacies on the political scene, on the tr oil trade, and on the treasuries trade, and on Russia's move against China. Because China's going to see this as Russia, period. There's no doubt about that. The hacking conglomerations in Russia only exist because Putin allows it. Because a lot of them work for him as well. Now they're attacking China. And China's taking notice. $9 billion had to come out of government funds to bail out a bank that was hacked by their purported ally, who without China would be in a much larger world of hurt. So this is kind of a big story. It's just all underneath the surface. And you only probably saw little blips of that on the surface of something weird. Weird just happened. Well, there you go. That was my long winded. It's a big subject and it covers oil and banks, but it mostly covers China and Russia uh, and the intricacies of what's happening there. And it's, it's visible on the economic side that there is a lot less um, camaraderie between Russia and China than would be expected here, or it will lead to less because maybe Russia didn't know this was going to happen, but they're still the ones um, holding the bag at the end of the heist going, uh, ooh, huh? Um, or, or some words in Russia to that effect. One of the things I learned over the years, and, um, I used to work in military intelligence as a strategic and tactical intelligence officer. I've got an obligatory, well, what an oxymoron. No, back yeah, to you. Well, actually, and um, we, the, the consensus among the intelligence analysts in the United States was that if the Russian army ever attacked, this is back during we Cold toast. War, the Soviet army back, back the, then. Yes. Right. Well, it's basically the same army that we have today. It's organized exactly the same way and has some of the same equipment, which should tell you something <laughs> weird about the fact that uh, a quarter of a century after, well, more than that, a third of a century after the fall of the Soviet Union or more, the uh, they're still using exactly the same tactics and exactly the same strategy and in many cases, exactly the same equipment. There was a study that came out this summer, and the U.S. researchers showed that within a few months of the launch of ChatGPT, copywriters and graphic designers on major online freelancing platforms 
saw a significant drop in the number of jobs they got and even steeper declines in earnings. Anecdotally, the people who did the study went to the companies that were previously employing these folks, and they discovered that indeed it was AI that was doing the copywriting. And copywriting, by the way, is when you need to have somebody write uh, some basic information about a product or about something. It isn't fancy reporting. It's not writing the great American novel. It's uh, write this thing up so we can do advertising or so we can do uh, an instruction manual or whatever. And they discovered that, in fact, it was chat GPT that was doing the writing that was displacing these previously well-paid copywriters. And then the graphic designers, apparently, I haven't actually used this. I think you may have used it or something. If you ask one of the AIs to draw a picture of just describe whatever you want to describe, it may not get it right the first time. But after you tell it what to take out of the picture, it does a really good job of drawing a picture like you would see in an ad in a magazine or something. Right. You definitely have some interesting effects sometimes. But here's the thing. So far, our courts have said that you can't actually copyright anything made by AI, which could long-term come back and bite those publishers who are used to publishing stuff that they have total control over. Yeah, but here's all that has to happen. I've I've read up on that because I was really interested in it instantly. All they have to do is change something relatively small about it after the AI gets done with it, and they can copyright it all they want to. Yeah. So that's what they're doing. They're just changing a little of this and a little of that and and throwing a copyright on it and going, going for it. Well, this is one of the things that's going on with the big Screen Actors Guild, um, SAG-AFTRA's big strike in Hollywood and across the board of saying, hey, we are not going to work until you give us some kind of um, protection against our long-term streams of income and our uh, protection for the use of our own faces and voices. Uh, as soon as AI comes in, they can make us obsolete by just, I mean, if you think about this, if you can't copyright AI, but you can make Sandra Bullock do your used car commercial for you by typing some words into a computer, would a Sandra Bullock get paid for that? And can you tell that it's not Sandra Bullock? Well, you can sort of, kind of today, but at some point you won't be able to tell. So they're scared and they're saying, you can't use it for that. And we're not going to do any more work until you pay us more and give contracts that say you're not going to do that. The thing is, it's only valid against the people who are signing the contracts. It's not like the used car dealership cares about the contract that was signed between Sandra Bullock and a big production studio in Hollywood. Uh, So Congress has to look at this too. We don't really have a whole lot. Who owns your face? Um, Well, if you're walking around in public, anyone is allowed to film you. If you're talking while in public, anyone's allowed to record that. When it comes to actually making money, off of that recording, they can do that too. So if they get a video of Sandra Bullock saying, I hate this car at another used car lot, they can use that in their ad. But what about when they make Sandra Bullock say that? Who gets to use it? Well, don't know. This is new stuff. And this is, why are we talking about that? As weird as it is, and I'm not, I'm not a big fan of unions in general. I'm not a big fan of SAG-AFTRA in general. Having said that, intellectual property rights are what protects us 
when financial collapses occur. There's Nobel Prize winning on this. There's prizes given out across lots of spectrums saying that the more your intellectual property is protected. Well, I mean, not long ago, we were talking about China and how they're not doing this and how we get to keep what we earn. If you invent something, you get to reap the benefits of that. You can put a patent on it. Nobody can compete with you for a while on it. This is what I'm talking about with intellectual property rights. If somebody can take what you've already made and alter it slightly, can they get their own patent on your stuff? Well, then you've got to go back and fight it. Well, what if AI is doing it? What if AI is going out and looking at all the patent software out there and coming up with new patent ideas? It is, by the way. This is part of the reason why we're talking about who owns the patent now? The new one. Well, we don't know yet. We've only kind of said that you can't copyright something written by AI. What if AI is making new transistors, new light-emitting diodes, LEDs, new anything? Who owns it? Who gets to use it? We don't know that stuff yet. Well, shouldn't the owner of the AI get some kind of credit? They spent a lot of money on it. We'll see. Nobody knows. Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give fiduciary customized investment advice and portfolio management that we can't do on the air. Off the air, uh, we do this for people of relatively high net worth. If you would like to call us uh, locally, we have voicemail, but uh, during the week, it's real live people, no phone trees. You can reach us locally at 254-947-1111 or toll free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Doesn't mean the same as it used to back when everybody had a phone on the wall, but you know, in your pocket, it's not any different to do local or long distance. Amazing. And if you're a millennial and younger listening, you're like, oh, what an old fogey. All right. So if you would like to go to our webpage, it's thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com where you can uh, read our newsletter, sign up for the newsletter. It comes out every Friday and I think it's fantastic. You can listen to our radio program going back lots of years. You can also go and find our podcast anywhere podcasts are found. Email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com.